This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hello, this is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Dennis Berger. And we're here to talk to you about everything that's going on in audio in the last couple of weeks that we haven't already covered in a previous podcast. <laughs> maybe maybe not everything, but at least well, the stuff that interests us. Yeah. Everything so. that's worth covering. We're not going to cover the 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 issue of a new, you know, $20 Bluetooth speaker from some brand you've never heard of. <laughs> and we're have not to go to other d- podcasts for that. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to dig into all of the backlash from the mobile fidelity, uh, kerfuffle. I think everybody sort of talked that to death, but, um, yeah, I'm done with that. Okay. Yeah. Mobile well, fidelity, we, bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. vinyl, whatever, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Certain reviewers exposed, but whatever. <laughs> What are we talking about this week, Brent? We are going to start off with an article that is on Soundstage Simplify by Gordon Brockhouse, and it's a review of the new KEF LS60 speaker. And we've talked a little bit about this uh, in the past, but now we've got a full review. And Dennis, I think it's pretty uh, extraordinary. So what are we going to do after that? You know, you and I have been talking quite a bit about measurements, what they Mm -hmm. mean, how we do them, how we use them, how we communicate about them. But Tom Miller of the Absolute Sound has got a new article about the subject called Philosophical Notes. What is the trouble with measurements? And I have to say, I think you and I both are going to have some fun with this one. (laughs) Needless to say, we're going to have some stuff to talk about. Well, learning is fun. I want to learn. I want to learn. Yeah, so, absolutely. I'm here. What are we, what are we going to wrap up with this week? We are going to wrap up with uh, a discussion of the AES conference paper that was just published recently, uh, which we found out about from Copper Magazine, which is put up by PS Audio, and mm-hmm. it is called "Survey of User Perspectives on Headphone Technology," and it's a survey of 406 participants about how they use headphones and what they want from their headphones. So that should be kind of interesting. Yeah. There were some surprises for me in the data. I have to admit, um, I'm not as super into headphones as you are. So maybe, maybe that's why I was surprised, but I'm going to be interested to pick your brain about it. But before we get to that, let's dig into, to this LS 60 review. So what was so special? I mean, first of all, do you want to describe what the LS 60 speaker is? Yeah, so we talked about this a few episodes ago. Um, Kef has introduced this wireless active speaker system that Gordon mm-hmm. Brockhouse has reviewed on Soundstage Simplify. Um, it is, uh, it's, I mean, I effectively, I think it's Kef's 60th anniversary speaker, but it yeah. is a completely active speaker. It has uh, all of the the sort of inputs that you would need to connect if you want to you could connect a turntable to it you could connect other sources you could connect your tv but you don't really need to connect anything to it because it's an entire there's an entire streaming ecosystem built into these speakers and you could just take these speakers set them up in your room turn them on load up the app and have access to amazon music and deezer and cobas and spotify and title and all of these like radio mm-hmm. like internet radio and 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 you could you could have a complete music system just from these two speakers but the thing is more often than not when we talk about all-in-one solutions we're talking about something for a desktop maybe it looks something like the oh, i don't know the 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 Bowers and Wilkins Zeppelin i think is a, a really mm-hmm. popular sort of all-in-one speaker and name makes them and things like that but these are big tower speakers big active tower speakers and Hmm. I, since they've been announced, I've kind of been a little bit anxious because to me, as we've said several times in the past, I think speakers of this sort are the future of Harmony. Mm-hmm. So if Kef had gotten it wrong, that would have hurt <laughs> like for me. Um, yeah. and so I've, I've been waiting for Gordon's review 
you know, more than just about anybody else's. And, and, um, based on his impressions, it seems like Kef got it right. Got it really, really right. So have you had a chance to read the review? I have. And, you know, honestly, for, for me, I mean, I, I would have, I don't have, what are these like seven or 8,000 bucks, right? Like 7,000 bucks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't have 7,000 bucks right now to spend on speakers, but mm-hmm. um, if I did, I would have probably bought them just from the technical description alone. Cause I have, I've not read the white paper on these, but I was fascinated with some of the driver design stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, there's so many, so often you see new speakers and it's like, Oh, our new innovative driver design that uses blah, blah, whatever, something. And, you know, anybody who knows what they're talking about, it's like, it's like, Oh, big deal. It's not going to make a difference. This has stuff that will make a difference. Um, well, I so mean, like, of, hey, just back up a second, because yeah. I mean, I, I want to underline something that you just breezed right by, which is Kef put out a what? white paper when they announced these speakers. Yeah. How many speaker companies are putting out white papers to accompany their speakers? No, it's all marketing fluff. Kef was like, yeah. oh, here's a white paper. So that's that should tell good. you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there's two cool things about this for me, above and beyond all the stuff, you know, the, all the electronics and stuff that's in there is that the woofers. So there's four woofers per speaker and they're five and a quarter inch woofers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which may not sound like a lot, but five, you know, or four five and a quarter inch woofers is, uh, you know, in a sealed cabinet like this with a lot of amp behind them can actually deliver a lot of bass. if They're well-made woofers. Now, mm-hmm. the neat thing about these is to keep the cabinet slim, they actually share a magnet so they're kind of mashed in together mm-hmm. and they share a magnet and the voice coils are concentric did you notice that i did yeah yeah I, there, there's a sort of an exploded view in gordon's review that mm-hmm. really illuminated a lot of stuff about the speaker for me so yeah so it's like one voice coil moves inside the other so you can get this super 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 powerful woofer that's in a, a span of i guess it's probably about seven or seven inches wide something like that um and then the other thing is that the on the you know there's a driver there that's combined that's a, a concentric mid range and tweeter, which is real common to Kef speakers for decades. And so what they did though was for the the vent for the tweeter, and I think the vent also serves the woofer to some extent. Normally there's just like a vent in the back, and either they seal it off or they leave it open or whatever, and it lets the mm-hmm. air out of the back of the tweeter, right? So what they did though is they put a, a kind of a, a uh, Gordon calls it a, a labyrinth back there to kill mm-hmm. the back wave of the high frequencies of above about 800 hertz or something like that. So it's kind of like a driver with a built-in transmission line. Yeah. And so we see a really little one. Line. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. little one. So we see transmission lines in like big tower speakers, and it's this complicated folded, folded and continually narrowing path. That's that's all stuffed, and it basically the back wave of the, spe- the of the speaker, you know, the, the the sound coming from the back of the drivers, basically just dies in there. And I think transmission lines, by and large, sound really really good. And mm-hmm. so this is taking the same uh, sort of technology and building it into a driver, and that's a great idea. It's a, I mean, if yeah. you got the money, if you got the money and resources to do it, and Kef clearly spent a lot of money developing this product, so. Yeah. Yeah. So what struck um, you about it besides all the cool features and stuff like that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you've covered a lot of what is what has um what struck me about it, but I like a lot of Gordon's explanations because sometimes I mean, some of this new technology, this new speaker technology, look, I don't write about these sorts of speakers a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan, but look, you can't you can't know, really truly know and understand everything, but, um, but just in particular, the, the meta material absorption technology we were talking about, like I've heard about that before. I've heard some details about it before. Um, a, a, one of our readers, Clay Anderson has written me about it before. He's a big fan. I don't, I wouldn't say I fully understood it until I read Gordon's review and it's like, oh, okay, I think I understand all of this better. It makes sense. And your description, you know, the way you just described it, it was a great description as well. But I think, I think Gordon actually explained it better than Kef's marketing materials did, which is not a knock against Kef. It's just, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it was just a really cool description and it's, it's cool to see that with so much going on in the speaker, there's so much about the speaker that I think actually moves the needle. 
um, whereas so much of what is released doesn't that it's, yeah. it's almost kind of overwhelming. It's just like, well, what's your favorite aspect? I don't know. There's just a lot of really cool stuff going on in the speaker, but I think the combination of the, you know, the, the, the active design, the meta material absorption technology, the built in streaming, but also the fact that you can connect this to your, to your TV and have a full fledged yeah. AV system. Um, the fact that if you want to, you can connect a uh, turntable to it and it will digitize the output of your turntable. I just, there's so many different ways that this system, and I, and we have to stop calling these speakers because they're not just speakers. I mean, this is a complete yeah. sound solution that just happens to come in two towers, right? And in so many ways, this is the future, but and I'm going to get joked on for this, but one of my favorite things about Gordon's review was when he talked about the unboxing process, because the packaging mm -hmm. for these things is just wicked cool to me. Packaging in a lot of ways is indicative of, I think what a company thinks of its own product. You could kind of tell hmm. where the company, hmm. you know, I mean, it, to me, you know, it's like, you can, you can look at like the different stuff that Morantz puts out and, and what have you, and look at it. You can always kind of tell what is their attitude toward this piece based on how they're packaging it. And with the LS 60, this thing is packaged quite unlike any speaker I've ever seen in some ways it's packaging reminds me of TV packaging where you've got this unwieldy thing in a box and mm -hmm. how are you going to get it out? And it, it, it's in so many cases with speakers, like one of the hardest things about the whole thing for me, is just unboxing and reboxing it. But Kevin's yeah. built this package for this thing that basically you, you, you squeeze two of these little things kind of like on a TV box and, and then the box lifts off the top and you'd sort of slide these speakers to wherever you want. And then the bottom mm -hmm. unfolds like origami. You could pull them out of the bottom. It's just, they've, they've put a lot of thought into every step of the consumer experience with this. Yeah. And to me, that's all really exciting. It is. It really is. I mean, this is, I, I think this is going to end up being a lot of, it's going to end up being product of the year for a lot of publications. I think so. I think it's so. such a, it's such a, and it, it's even, it even goes beyond, you know, the, the smaller, you know, LS 50 wirelesses that they did which were mm -hmm. product of the year for a lot of publications. This is like a, an engineer. Those are great, but this is an engineering, a big giant engineering and product design leap beyond mm -hmm. even those. And, and we're also glossing over the fact that Gordon goes into real depth here about the sonic performance of these things, comparing them directly against, you know, component stereo systems with passive speakers he does a real really great job i think of of putting the performance in context against a system that you know may be something that someone would be considering instead you know i mm -hmm. mean i think fewer and fewer people these days are truly considering component stereo systems which is a big shame yeah. in my opinion but i think it's like he puts these up against a system that you might be considering auditioning if you were in the market for that really putting the performance in perspective and really letting people know what they're going to get it's a long review i think every word of it is worth it and the main reason i wanted to talk about it today is just to encourage people to go read this review so yeah and i gotta say I, you know one thing that really strikes me about this is that for so you get these things and you get like a tv with a roku stick mm -hmm. and you get a turntable mm -hmm. and an optional optional is a NAS drive to play, you know, files off of if you want to, or just use streaming and you've got a full system with, you know, three components and yeah. you don't need anything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, you and don't these need, have... when I say you don't need, so I don't mean you can get away without adding anything else. I mean, you don't need anything else. The only feature that you could argue maybe would enhance the value of these things would be room correction. Now they do have tools True. built in to help you account for room gain and things like that. But it's like the only thing you could really do to make these things better, in my opinion, would be to add Dirac to them. So, yeah. Although, you know, maybe there's something to be said for, you know, enjoying the, the engineering expression of these speakers as they are. And, you know, they're well-engineered. So, look, there's one thing that we often, the whole high-end audio industry often overlooks, is well-engineered speakers will sound good in almost any room. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And badly-engineered speakers won't sound good in any room. <laughs> that's really true, too. So, uh, anything else you want to say about this one before we take a break? 
No, I, I'm ready for a break. All right, let's go take a break. I'll listen to some groovy tunes, and we'll be back in just a minute. Cool. with the Soundstage Audio File Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. Brent, I have to ask you a question, buddy. Yes, what? Have you read this this new story in the Absolute Sound about measurements? I have. It's uh, right, just philosophical just notes, the problem yeah. with measurements or something like that. Yeah. What yeah, is the trouble yeah. with measurements? Yeah, what is the trouble with measurements? That's what it's called. Yeah. I want to, I want to dig into this because this is, um, okay. this, this is ground that you and I have been stomping around in quite a bit over the course mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, now our 14th episode of the podcast talking about measurements and what they mean. And, uh, you know, we did a whole segment with Doug, our publisher about what they are and what they mean. And I, think it is pretty safe to say that Tom Martin, the author of this piece, has a very mm-hmm. different take than we do. I, I think that would be a fair assessment, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's a different take. Yeah, it's a different take. <laughs> so yeah, I just yeah. wanted to talk to you a bit about this piece and get your thoughts on it and share some of my thoughts on it. But let's just explain sort of the... <sighs> Let's explain Mr. Martin's starting assumptions. I'm, I think he, he leads off talking about Harry Pearson, which I don't think you could write an article for the Absolute Sound without starting off talking about <laughs> Harry Pearson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that as a dig. It was just an observation, touché. Brent. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it seems to me to be a defense of why the absolute sound doesn't do measurements. And yeah. um, the, the, the biggest, I think, argument that he's making is that measurements are really hard, <laughs> you know, and people don't understand what they mean. So if you do measurements, then you have to write all these words to explain what they mean. And, and then they can, they can give the wrong impression. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. I, you know, I, I can't read anybody's mind. I don't claim to be able to read anybody's mind. All I can do mm-hmm. is look at the evidence in front of me and say, what's this person's motivation? And it, to me, it just seems to be a very long defense of why the absolute sound doesn't want to do measurements. Um, yeah. Now he does say in the beginning, he says, you know, that's a misperception that we're opposed to measurements. And ideally we would, you know, present both words and measurements which makes mm-hmm. me say, like, oh, you mean like soundstage does? Like mm-hmm. stereophile does? Like mm-hmm. audioholics does? Like mm-hmm. so many other publications do? Huh. Okay. Yeah. Ideally, I guess those are the ideal publications. Anyway, so he, he does to sort of um, to show how confusing measurements can be, he presents some measurements. And now, there's a problem. First, the, the first thing you want to do, and, and I think most measurement people learn this the hard way, is you want to explain how you did the measurements, okay? Mm-hmm. Because someone will come in and say, well, this is screwed up because you did, do, did this, or you didn't do this, or blah, blah. You need to explain your methodology, or at the very least, you know, uh, at least give a standard for what you did. If you did like a, a CTA uh, uh, 2034 speaker measurement, well, you don't have to say that much. Besides that, that at least you're conforming to some standard, right? But mm-hmm. in this, it just says, here is a comparison of the on-axis frequency response of two of my favorite loudspeakers, the Magnapan LRS and the Wilson Audio Alex 5. 
Okay, so in this chart that he shows of his measurements, he's showing the MagnaPan LRS, which is a little, I think they're $750 a pair of speakers. Uh, it's a panel speaker. It's flat. It's like an inch thick or something like that. Now, mm -hmm. these speakers have very, very little bass. His, you know, because it's a really thin panel, it doesn't move, you know, very, it moves, you know, I guess probably uh, a, a few millimeters back and forth as opposed to maybe, you know, half an inch back and forth with a with a big woofer so anyway his his measurements showing a 15 db 14 db boost in the base on these panels which i've measured i can't remember if i've measured these magna pans but i've measured if i haven't measured them i've measured something similar and i never encountered that and i've seen other measurements of magna pans and i have not seen this and, and when i did my measurements for sound and vision that was a few years ago uh, Wendell Diller, who's the guy at MagnaPan, you know, I actually communicated with him and, you know, asked him like, hey, you know, I never measured these before. What do I do? And he kind of, he knew his stuff. He was, he was a good measurement guy and he, and we had a good collaboration. And I don't remember seeing a 15 dB boost. And frankly, I don't know physically how you get that out of that panel. I mean, so that would anyway, have to be some really, really, really wild boundary gain, right? It, that well, that's, that's what we're getting to here. So oh, okay. he doesn't see, again. He doesn't say how he does this measurement, which is a cardinal sin in measurements. But I can tell you how he did this measurement. Just looking at it, it's very low resolution. Uh, it's he's got about I um, uh, fifteen, sixteen measurement points. If you so, if you 18. look at the eighteen, okay, you can count much faster than I can. Um, <laughs> So, but if you look at the way the chart's done, and then you go compare it to any other chart anywhere else, pretty much, you'll notice on the horizontal axis, normally that's frequency, right? And you'll go from, with a speaker measurement, you might go 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz or whatever you choose to do. And what they use is they use a logarithmic scale. So like you devote as much space on the graph to the area from 100 to 1,000 hertz as you do from 1,000 to 10,000 hertz. And Why so, is that? And, well, it's because we. This is the way we hear. So we hear in the same way that uh, you know, basically, musical instruments produce notes in octaves, right? So, mm -hmm. an eighty hertz tone is, you know, a hundred and sixty hertz tone is one octave above an eighty hertz tone, right? And then a three hundred and twenty hertz tone is one octave above one sixty, and a six forty, you know, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the resolution of the chart is the greatest in the bass and it's the least in the treble. What he did though, is he didn't use an, it's, it's obvious he didn't use an audio analyzer for this because no. any audio analyzer is going to work in a logarithmic scale. It looks like what he did is put this into Google sheets or Excel, you know, some kind of a spreadsheet program. And he has discrete data points in here, but the data points are sort of, I think he looked at a at what an audio analyzer does and didn't understand it's a logarithmic scale. And then he sort of did something that that is sort of made to look like a logarithmic scale. Uh, so it goes from like, uh, you know, it goes in like 10 hertz steps for a while. <laughs> and then it goes in like 250 hertz steps. And it kind of yeah. goes in these in these random chunks of steps. That, and so anybody who knows, the, who you know, measurement 101 is... And audio is that, okay, the frequency band is logarithmic scale, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. I mean, every audio analyzer works like this, and he didn't do that. And by the way, Room EQ Wizard, which is a, a great audio analyzer, is free. And you can get a microphone that works with it for, I think, about $80, the uh, Dayton Audio EMM6 USB mic. And mm -hmm. so this is not a major investment. It looks to me like what he did was rather than use an audio analyzer and a mic with which you can, which even on the simplest level, you if you know what you're doing, you can make some worthwhile measurements. Um, Joe Mariano on Joe and Tell, a YouTube channel, does the pretty much the rig I just described and actually does useful measurements with that. They're limited, but they're useful. I can look at his measurements and go like, oh, I kind of get what that speaker does. I think that what the author of this piece did is he used an SPL meter. Maybe yeah. the one, maybe an I think it, app on his phone. I think it must be on his phone because look at the drop off from 10,000 to 15,000 Hertz. Like that's, oh, the, yeah. that's the kind of roll off you get with like iPhone mics. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Um, yeah. That's kind of ugly. Anyway, so I think that's what he did. And he just used step tones 
to do it, he did not take into account the room. So what we're getting is all the room effects of these speakers. And of course, you don't you can do good in-room measurements if you average a whole bunch of different points. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you do like, I think Joe doesn't wave the mic in a circle. <laughs> Works good yeah. too. And average. Totally valid. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but you have to take into the whole, the, you know, the whole room response to get a, a valid measurement. And he's just taking the response apparently here at one seating position, which is where you can get a giant boost in the base. Okay? Well, he says it's that, on axis. Yeah. So. He says it's on axis, but there's no such thing. <sighs> on axis is meaningless with an in-room measurement because if you yeah. go into an anechoic chamber and you, you know, if you measure a speaker on axis, all you're getting is the front wave of that speaker. All the other sound that radiates in different directions is all absorbed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or if you do a quasi-anechoic measurement, which is what like I do and Stereophile does, you can gate out all those reflections. And so you're, all you're getting is the, the front wave. When you do an in-room measurement, you're still getting all that stuff that's, that's coming off of the speaker in every direction. Yep. And you're getting the influence of the room on all that stuff. So some of it will be absorbed. Some of it will be, will be reflected. Some of it will be amplified through room resonances or, you know, room modes as they're called. Okay. Which is, I, th- I think is what he bumped into here. And he's saying that, well, so his whole point is there's this, you know, 14 dB bump on the MagnaPan, but that's some kind of compensation because the MagnaPan's a dipole speaker. It blows both ways, right? It's got, you know, the, the front and back are, are all open. So he's saying that the back wave cancels out the front wave so you have to have this giant bass boost then what you hear is actually what he shows in his chart some kind of compensation for it um but, but doesn't really I, explain how he does that compensation well first of all know? that's not well what he says there is not true first of all this is a dipole speaker okay it works like a figure eight microphone in reverse so it has equal radiation forward and back but then when you are at a 90 degree angle to the speaker there's a big null where everything cancels okay Mm -hmm. but the back wave doesn't disappear you know the back wave you know bounces off lots of stuff and comes back to you in with varying phase relationships to the front wave depending on the frequency Okay, so he's taking a a measurement that is as bad as any speaker measurement I've ever seen. Actually, it's the worst because every every other bad speaker measurement I've ever seen at least used an analyzer. Um, <laughs> well, you know, and at I, least was done in good faith, not to undermine. Yeah, yeah, the the whole notion of measurements, right? So this is yeah. a hit job, you know. Yeah, so this is a, but this is it, it's like he he doesn't understand at all how measurements work and didn't bother to try. And so he's, but he's saying like, oh, well, we have to add this compensation to this because, you know, measurements can be confusing if you, because we have to add this. But it's like everybody who does speaker measurements already knows. Yeah, there are a few people that don't do good speaker measurements, right? But mm-hmm. most of the people that do it, whatever level you're on, are pretty well cognizant of these problems. You know, you don't look in soundstage or stereophile and see this giant bass boost because the people that do measurements for soundstage, stereophile, et cetera, audioholics, understand how speaker measurements work and they know to, they would know to compensate for something like that if it existed, which it doesn't. Yeah. But they know how to, you know, they the people that, who do speaker measurements know, like, okay, if I'm doing in-room, I've got to average a whole bunch of points. Otherwise, I'm going to get the influence of the room in there. Or I got to do a quasi-anechoic measurement like Stereophile does, or I have to do an anechoic measurement like Soundstage does. Those are all valid measurements. If you know what the measurement is, then you can you know what how to interpret it. You know, you know, if you're really... If you read Stereophile, John Atkinson explains, you know, he uses quasi-anechoic. He explains how he does it. He explains what the flaws are in that technique because there are some things that you have to compensate for, but his measurements are really good. And Soundstage measures in an anechoic chamber, which is really easy because it's almost, it's a few little, you know, niggling things aside. Anechoic chambers, you just put the speaker in there, run the measurement, it's perfect. So, Anyway, this is kind of like uh, this. To, this to me reminds me of like someone. If you look at a bicycle, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, 
that thing just has two wheels and you're supposed to pedal this thing and move it forward. There's no way that can work. Whereas everybody who rides a bicycle is like, no, I've learned to my, it took me about like 10 minutes for my brain to learn to compensate for that. But yeah, yeah. it just, this drives me. But I feel, I feel, I feel like I am the victim here. Okay. Because, or we, or we, we are, we are the victims here. Okay. We are the victims. Because we have gotten slagged on some comment section for like, you know, basically doing hit jobs on other reviewers. But yeah. this reminds me of, there's that scene for, from Unforgiven where, you know, the, 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 the Clint Eastwood character goes up to that bar and, you know, his friend, you know, the Morgan Freeman character is displayed dead. His dead body is displayed at the front of the bar as a warning to, you know, bounty hunters like Clint Eastwood. So Clint Eastwood <laughs> walks into the bar and said, who's the proprietor of this establishment? And the, the bartender says, I am. And Clint Eastwood shoots him. And the Gene Hackman character, the sheriff, says, you just shot an unarmed man. And Clint Eastwood says, well, he should have armed himself if he was going to put <laughs> my, my friend's body out on the front of his bar. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, I don't care if some guy wants to to, to rave about some messed up speaker what do i care there's 50 people doing that right as we speak probably but yeah to sit here and and do a hit piece on measurements when you have not done the work at all to understand them even on the most basic level i'm yeah. sorry i don't i don't want to come off like like you know the incredible hulk and i have to smash every <laughs> reviewer i don't agree with you're the credible hulk brent <laughs> Okay, great, great. Now I have a new nickname to, to for the rest of my career. Is that website URL taken yet? Um, I don't know. We need to go look. <laughs> it is now. Um, but I'm sorry. This individual deserves criticism. And I, and I say it's like this. I, another thing that another thing that bothers me, and this is maybe just me, but the the article's titled Philosophical Notes, and I've watched this guy's videos, and he also he has like a thing on his desk that says, you know, philosophy department. And they mm -hmm. put a picture of I think it's Aristotle. Mm -hmm. I get my like I get my old like Greek and Roman dudes all confused. But um so so it's like they're trying to tag the whole thing with this philosophy thing. And yeah, we're into the philosophy of it. But in my view, things like you know, philosophy is you know, the the last refuge of someone who in, in the case of audio, people who start citing philosophy and all this stuff, that's the last refuge of someone who doesn't have anything insightful to say about audio. Yeah, I, mean, I would not be so offended if not for the fact that he is using this as an attack on people who value quantification as he describes it you know yeah. i mean he calls people who value measurements he says that's a cognitive bias right and it's like that's when i get offended yeah. they, if you're just like hey i don't see the value in measurements i just want to describe what it sounds like then i'm like hey you do you boo maybe your reviews aren't for me but when you go on this crusade measurements are bad and i'm going to do this really crappy measurement to explain why that's when i take offense because Measurements are hard, man. And, and yeah. for someone like me, like I don't measure my electronics for the, that I, mm -hmm. that I do reviews on Diego Estan, uh, of mm -hmm. soundstage measures the stuff that I do. Sometimes that's scary. You know, I, I just had a bit of a scare when I sent an integrated amp to Diego to measure and mm -hmm. it comes back and there's problems with the, um, with the headphone amplifier. Well, the reason that's scary is because I uncharacteristically spent a lot of time in this review talking about how great the headphone output was, which in an integrated amp is not always, I mean, you yeah. know, sometimes you can't take it for granted. Like it'll sound great with in-ear monitors, you know, something that's really easy to drive. But if I plug my big Odyssey LCD2 cans into it, you know, sometimes that's where you can, you can, these headphone amps built into cheap gear they don't quite stand up because they just don't have enough oomph to really drive them. But this one did, and it sounded great. Well, it turns out there's a problem and it's, it's like something approaching 1% THD, you know, and hmm. you know, here's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary on the one hand, because that would given, given the body of understanding that we have with relation to measurements sort of undermine my observations 
And then at first I, I had kind of a reaction, this gut reaction of, oh, did Diego do something wrong? And, and it was just pure self-preservation, right? <laughs> it was just me yeah. feeling threatened, right? But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, maybe what this means is that I just can't really hear 1% THD, you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe, well, yeah. I mean, you know, you know it, dep- it depends on where the, it just depends on what frequency the distortion's at. It depends yeah. on whether or not it's excited. It depends on what level you're listening at, a whole lot of things. I mean, that's a problem, but it's not necessarily a problem. It's a, well, it's a and, bit of an engineering flaw. And even said, it doesn't, it doesn't really appear until you turn the volume way up. And when I'm listening to yeah. headphones, I don't turn the volume way up. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is all of these measurements, yes, we have to explain them. Tom goes on the thing about, oh, you have to translate those measurements into, uh, into language that people can understand. And sometimes it's a two-step process that's lossy. <sighs> Whatever. I don't well, I'll tell see. You what. I tell you what. I mm-hmm. tell you what. Maybe actually try doing legitimate measurements yeah. with an analyzer and with actual, you know, real gear, which again, I mean, you can go buy an Omnimic from Dayton Audio for 300 bucks. It's based on a professional measurement system called Praxis. It's really good. Mm-hmm. You can do, you ought to go build yourself some stands and turntables and stuff, but you can do perfectly fine speaker measurements with, with that as good as I can do with my Clio, as good as John Atkinson could do with Melissa. I mean, I'm really good buddies with Steve Guttenberg. Steve mm-hmm. Guttenberg is, is pretty... I don't want to say he's anti-measurement. He just doesn't care about measurements. He's like, you know what? Some of the things I see good measurements for, I don't like. And some of the things I see bad measurements for, I like. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, look, measurements can't, you know, you're whether you like something is a very complex combination of the way it sounds, your preconceptions, the way it looks, tribalism, all sorts of things. Measurements mm-hmm. can't predict how you're going to re- react to a product in a, a completely subjective situation like that they just kind of give you a percentage of like hey you know people tend to like this most people like this and this is how close product a comes to that target curve Mm -hmm. um and also let you see if there's just any egregious engineering flaws right right yeah and and, you know everybody who does measurements says that stuff it's all these Mm -hmm. people who don't do measurements that that (laughs) start writing about you know what is the trouble with measurements? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they build a complete straw man um, and, yep. and think they've accomplished something by knocking it over. Yeah. They have not. I mean, well, the, all of all, yeah, all of this is done is really sort of uh, kind of prove our point. <laughs> I think. All right. Maybe so I'm, I'm, uh, I find myself converting back into Brent Butterworth from the credible Hulk. <laughs> so maybe we should take a break now. <laughs> is, is the sun getting, or the moon getting real low? What yeah. is it? The sun getting real low? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my okay. pants, my pants are starting to fit again. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you've always looked good in purple, Brent. So let's, uh, let's take a break and listen to some music and we'll be back in just a minute. All right. I am Brent Butterworth, apparently now known as the Credible Hulk. <laughs> and I am Dennis Berger. Awesome. I don't, I don't have a nickname. Sorry. I'm just. Oh, well, we have to work on that. I'm um, just the dude. So. But there's nothing distinctive about you that we can make a nickname about. No, um, <laughs> I'm so kidding. Anyway, so we're going to wrap up here with an article uh, by John C2 that's on a magazine called Copper, which you can get for free. It's a you know, online magazine. Uh, go to psaudio.com. PS Audio makes you know high-end audio electronics and some speakers. Uh, but if you go to their website, psaudio.com, there's a tab for Copper Magazine, and we highly recommend it. It's free. It's edited by Frank Doris, who's one of our long, long, long-time buddies and a really good editor. Mm-hmm. And there's just lots of content on there. So 
Anyway, there's an article titled, very sexy title, AES Europe Spring 2022 Part 2. <laughs> and it's by John C2. And he goes over like basically all the stuff that was done in the uh, papers submitted to the Audio Engineering Society Conference in the Netherlands that happened in spring 2022. Okay, so this paper is called Survey of User Perspectives on Headphone Technology. And this is by Millap Rain from the University of Surrey Institute of Sound Recording with three other co-authors, Philip Coleman, Russell Mason, and Soren Beck. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did was they, there wasn't enough user research on headphones. You know, we have a lot of research now on headphone frequency response and distortion and things like that. But there wasn't that much research on just user opinions of headphones in general. And so they did a 38-question survey. And with, if I remember correctly, 406 participants. And Mm -hmm. so do you, were there, I mean, you kind of brought this to my attention. Were there any sort of favorite takeaways that you had from this? You know, I mean, there's a bunch of little details that stood out to me as particularly cool. One of the things that I guess... I didn't expect, and I'm not quite sure why they did a breakdown of like the actual headphone brands that people are using. Well, the first thing that stood out was they, they, they sort of quantified what types of headphones or earphones are people using. Right. And interestingly enough, like 49% of respondents, uh, were listening to over ears. Um, and yeah, only 28% in ears, only 14% earbuds and only 8% on ears. Um, so, you know, and and for anybody who doesn't know an on-ear kind of looks like an over-ear headphone, but it doesn't surround your ear entirely. It sort of rests on your ear. Um, but, um, yeah, I was just kind of shocked to see that 49% of people were primarily using over ears, but also another interesting thing for me is they broke down like what brands these people are using. Um, and, uh, the top one was Sennheiser. I, that was really cool. I, I didn't quite expect that followed by Sony, um, followed by audio technica, and then Apple at 9%, Biodynamic at 8%, and Bose at 6.5%. Um, I'm not quite sure why. I think I would have expected Bose to be on top. But yeah, Sennheiser is on top. I mean, it could have something to do with the fact that it's a European survey. I don't know. Yeah. But I just found that really interesting. So Yeah, I, I was fascinated by the fact that... Uh, Nearly 25% of the people listen up to six hours a day, and 20.8% listen more than six hours a day to headphones. And those people really should be like checking their volume levels because you are going to go deaf if you do that. For if you crank your headphones six hours a day, you are not going to last 10 years, you're not going to last five. No, no, not without significant hearing damage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it. Did I don't think that the study really said much about where people have their volume knobs at, but, no. but that's a, it's a really good point. But um, the other thing that was neat is they sort of uh, surveyed people's perspectives on the features that are most important to them and the features that they're actually interested in, in for future upgrading. It's kind of fascinating to see that like um, the, one of the most requested features that people are like, yeah, I'd be interested in this is smarter noise cancellation, you know, noise cancellation hmm. that also lets through, uh, ambient noise when need be. Um, and I, and I guess it, it's kind of hard to tell for sure, but I guess what they're, what they're saying is people are saying, you know, man, give me my full blown noise cancellation. But if these things pick up a sound of a car, then switch it into ambient mode, you know, something like that. So, I know. Oh, that's brand, interesting. Yeah, brands like Sony do have some some smart ambient features, mm-hmm. but I don't think quite to the degree that that people are talking about here in terms of like fully smart noise cancellation. Yeah. So they're talking that, about here, you know, like like it would be you'd have you could have voices come through, but not you know like low frequency sounds. I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's pretty good. So like if you're on a plane and the flight attendant says, what would you like to drink? That'll come through, but the plane going won't. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just read exactly what it says in the survey here. And, and that way people can sort of make their own uh, impression of, of what is meant. 21% of the responses mentioning noise cancellation also mentioned transparency, meaning that the users are looking for smarter noise cancellation that includes certain external sounds that the users consider crucial in their listening experience, like traffic, train announcements, etc. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, look, you, if people want to sell these products, they have to develop technologies that people actually want. And these are the technologies yeah. that people are telling these surveys, surveyors that they want. Um, also, apparently they have no interest in spatial audio. So, <laughs> hmm. um, I thought that Although was we have to say, we have to say, there's a common misconception, which I think some of the headphone industry wants to create, that your headphones, there has to be something special about your headphones for them to be compatible with spatial audio, which is not true. Mm -hmm. All headphones are compatible with spatial audio. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dolby Atmos and things like that, because you know what? It's two drivers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the drivers might be good or bad or whatever, and you might have some digital processing in there or whatever. But you know, the cheap, uh, you know, skull candy fifteen dollar earphones you buy at Target are compatible with spatial audio. Yeah. So, yeah. so I have a question for you, Brent. Yes. A lot of times when we get research like this about user preferences, if it is a if it is a domain that I am active in covering. It sort of informs how I review, how I cover this stuff. You know, I, it's, I, it, I need to know what the people who are going to potentially be reading my reviews want, but mm -hmm. I don't really cover headphones. So I'm wondering if there's anything in this paper that is perhaps going to influence the way you do reviews or what you choose to cover. Was there anything that stood out to you that made you think, hmm, maybe I need to do things a little differently? Yes. Um, the big thing is that you know, noise canceling is such a big deal here. And the fact that they're looking for, you know, adaptive noise canceling. And I have to say adaptive noise canceling is really hard to measure. Um, I, it's, well, it's, it's kind of hard to measure. It's easy for me to measure with any of these things. I, I've measured a lot of headphones with adaptive noise canceling. And you can always figure out some way to measure the maximum noise canceling of the headphone, which is what the, the guys who are getting on guys and girls, everybody who's getting on airplanes, you know, kind of want that maximum noise canceling that you're going to get with the better, you know, Bose and Sony and uh, Soundcore and stuff, you know, those brands. Mm -hmm. um, but measuring how it works when, and I could even measure like, can a voice intrude upon that? You can see that right in my existing measurements, but, you can't see a lot of things like, does it give you situational awareness when you're walking down the street? Well, I don't know. Um, how do I trigger that as a measurement person? There's no standards for this. There's no standards for how those features are supposed to work. Uh, we don't, there's no, I've, I, look, I've measured a lot of these things. I've tested a lot of these things. Some of them really don't seem to do much. Some of them, they, the manufacturer clearly put some thought into it. So it's kind of mystery meat right now. And it is, it's hard to characterize. When I say characterize, I mean measured. It's hard to characterize these things in a, in a really objective way. But, you know, but we, we have to do our best. Well, I think uh, we've learned, if we've learned anything this week, it's that if, if measurements are hard, you should just give up. <laughs> or just make up something. <laughs> just make up something. Yeah. Make up something that looks like a that looks, you know, like it could be a plausible chart and that's all you need to do. Yeah. You know, why yeah. fuss with this stuff? Yeah. So I I also I kind of um I was interested that they said customization preferences were wanted more for home listening. Um, which that surprises me a little bit because, you know, I think audiophiles by and large, and people can certainly weigh in on this in the various comment sections that we have or on our email addresses or however you want to get in touch with us. Um, audiophiles, I think, tend to want to buy a headphone and listen to it, you know, raw 
without a lot of EQ. Mm. Uh, but once you get more into the sort of headphone enthusiast, which is a subset of audiophiles, they tend to be less averse to EQ and they don't mind doing a little EQ, especially since so much of their listening is on a phone or computer, and those all offer EQ. Interesting. So can I just interject I, here? Yeah, because sure, like sure. I I think the last headphone review that I did for a previous publication I worked for was the mm-hmm. Sony XM4, the last generation yeah. Sony over ears. Man, people got all up in my business in the review section for daring to listen with the EQ engaged. And I'm like, but it's a it's a feature that it's like built into yeah. the headphone. I'm like not using yeah. the EQ on my phone. It's like like this is the product has EQ built in. It has all of these EQ modes. I apparently committed some sort of grave sin by daring to engage the EQ. So maybe that was just that crowd, though. I don't know. So maybe so. I you know I get you know I I I get actually get readers who ask me you know like how did you EQ the headphones or did you mm-hmm. try EQing it this way or things like that. I don't. The headphone crowd is nowhere near as averse to EQ as audiophiles are. Uh, you know, traditional two-channel audiophiles. But I think that the fact that people wanted, you know, customization preferences for home listening, which in home listening, the the customization preferences means EQ, basically, mm-hmm. um, is interesting to me. And, I mean, it's frightening to me as a measurement guy because that's just more stuff I got to measure. But um, it's interesting to me that people want more listening flexibility and they don't necessarily just want to go buy a, really nice set of Odyssey or Hi-Fi Man or whatever headphones and listen to them raw. They actually do want to do some tweaking and they want those headphones to offer some modes that will let them do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you want to wrap it up? Yeah, man. Let's wrap Shall it up. We? For the, yeah, let's do some credits. Okay, so uh, you have been listening to the SoundSage Audiophile podcast, if you haven't figured that out by now. <laughs> and um, we have... Uh, music is by probably me and I think in partnership with uh, my musical partner Ron Seiger hmm. with whom I have a group called Take Two you guys are working on a new album right can I say we that are working on a, say we that? are working on a new album and I am going to one of the cuts that will be in here let's say it'll be the first cut um, the first cut will be an experimental arrangement of a tune that Ron wrote which we're Ooh. still very much working on but I've been learning it it's a really kind of hard beboppy tune that will be the first tune. And the second tune will be, God, who knows what. Oh, man, I can't wait to so, hear them. We should say, by the way, else? we are a production of the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites covering all sorts of topics and audio from very, uh, I, I cover affordable stuff. You cover all manner of headphones. Gordon covers connected audio. We have ultra high-end sites. We cover the entire spectrum. So yeah. if you're into audio in any way, shape, or form, there is a Soundstage microsite for you or maybe they're all for you so come check them out and this podcast is is produced and edited by butter burger productions <laughs> yeah i'm still getting used to that that's kind of weird yeah. so we'll but it's we'll like figure. mccartney and lennon just not as good <laughs> wait a minute all right well um yeah man i guess we'll uh i guess we'll see everybody in a couple of weeks okay bye everybody bye